you know, if you don't have things perfect on at time zero, when the birds get to the to the barn, you're already behind. So, you know, having, um, you know, having the barn, and then there's a little bit of a challenge in, in the Midwest as well, you know, when we're dealing with winter. So having the barns warmed up, having uh, the litter warmed up, the bedding warmed up, uh, having the right temperatures set up. Uh, in our facility, we had to have heat lamps in each each pen. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming soon. The brightest minds of the global poultry industry will be right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable ways. DSM, helping customers with efficient and sustainable poultry production. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operations safe. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. And AB Vista. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Malash, your host for this episode of the Poultry Podcast Show. Joining us today is our guest, Dr. Sally Knoll, a professor in the Department of Animal Science in the College of Food, Agriculture, and Natural Resource Sciences at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Knoll has served on the faculty at the University of Minnesota since 1985, with over 30 years of extension experience in all aspects of turkey and broiler chicken production. Her focus for both research and extension programming is turkey and poultry nutrition, as well as diseases and health issues that are relevant to the poultry industry. Because of her extension appointment, her research and extension programs have varied depending on the assessed needs for problem solving and poultry production. Her past collaborative projects have included evaluation of production systems, environmental impacts of poultry production systems, uh, biosecurity approaches, ammonia emissions from turkey facilities, gut health and microbiome succession, disease problem areas of rheovirus, arthritis, and avian metanumavirus. Quite the spread of research activities there. Additionally, her research program in recent years has focused on the nutritional evaluation of feed ingredients, protein and amino acid requirements for turkeys, and the evaluation of a partially slotted flooring system for commercial market turkeys. On a personal note, Dr. Noel was an undergraduate mentor of mine, and it is safe to say that I would not be where I am now in my career if she had not mentored me and encouraged me to pursue a path in poultry nutrition. So thank you, Dr. Noel, for your direction and support all those years ago, as well as for coming on our show today. Welcome, Dr. Noel. Okay, thank you. That was quite the introduction. And I think I sent you too long of an introduction. It's <laughs> all right. And You've covered so much in your career. It's hard to fit it all. And I also enjoyed my years of working with you as an undergrad. So I'm so glad to see. Oh, thank you. It really see your at it quite literally changed my life. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so. For the best. <laughs> so I came prepared today. I have my let's talk turkey cup. So <laughs> excellent. Well, I'm excited to talk about turkeys. I'm afraid they get a little bit of the short end of the stick often in consideration of poultry nutrition. Um, it's hard to find turkey specific information out there. Um you know, for, for our audience, could you tell us some maybe recent research highlights or hot topics in turkey nutrition and health right now? Well, um, yes. Yeah, so I mean, from a nutrition standpoint, anyways, I think um, adjusting the feed formulas for consumer uh, retailer demands, and one of those would be like an all vegetable based diet, 
And in turkeys, you know, the challenge there is that they already have such a high amino acid, protein, nitrogen requirement in comparison to, say, broiler chickens or other types of chickens. So trying to replace all of that animal protein with a soybean meal to have 100%, well, not 100%, but a soybean meal as 100% of the protein source in the diet, you know, is really a challenge and can result in also some management issues as well when we feed those types of diets, as well as performance. And then the other one that you mentioned from a management standpoint, the slotted, it's a partially slotted flooring system. And we were looking at that again to try to decrease, um, improve the environment for the birds from the standpoint of minimizing ammonia emissions, because we can take and collect the excreta, you know, underneath um, a slotted flooring system, which is placed underneath feeders and waters where birds tend to defecate anyways. And also to minimize the amount of effort in terms of maintaining the, the litter base. And I think we've made some good progress on there. Our biggest issue yet is still trying to figure out how to minimize carcass defects because even though the birds don't spend enough, a lot of time on the slotted flooring, they go to the bedded areas to take and rest. They still spend enough time to um, uh, de- you know, develop some breast blisters. So, so those are probably the two, two main recent things anyways. Very interesting. So as I mentioned, it can be a little bit hard to find turkey-specific research, uh, especially on the feed additive side. Why do you think it is that turkeys get overlooked in research? And could you maybe talk a little bit about why they can't just be considered big chickens? (laughs) Yeah, I'm always kind of surprised when people... So I usually get contacted after somebody that's been doing a lot of broiler chicken research and they decide to try turkeys and it doesn't go very well. And so that's when I usually get questions about, well, what's going on? And so to try to try to take, um, I mean, just try to manage as birds and everything. I don't think people realize the amount of, they're, they're actually fairly delicate animals and they're around for a long time in contrast to broiler chickens, you know, so up to 20 weeks with uh, the market toms. And so anything that happens initially in that first three to four weeks of age, even within the first few days has an impact on them, you know, for basically the rest of their life. And it's also very expensive research because of the, you know, just the cost of the birds, the amount of feed that needs to go into them, uh, the amount of space and so forth for an adequate size facility. I mean, in that at the Rosemont facility anyways, typically we would have somewhere around eight to 12 replication, replicate pens um, per treatment. And sometimes we could have even used more than that and higher numbers of birds. And so very quickly you get into a situation where you've got a lot of feed that needs to be produced and handled, a lot of very heavy birds that need to be handled as well. And you probably remember some of that from your undergrad work too. Very labor intensive research. Yes. And um, and then just the sheer amount of space um, that's needed to take and house them. And then you have to have a place to take and process them, too. And luckily, over the years, I've had the cooperation of companies in Minnesota that were willing to take, you know, process a flock of a thousand birds. Otherwise, trying to take that number of birds to a custom processor is just real, especially heavy toms anyway, is very difficult. Definitely a lot of logistical challenges. Oh, Yeah. And then, and then I think after that is just knowledge of, of the bird itself and behaviors and, um, 
differences in nutrition and digestion and microbiome. I know a lot of the products that are out there now are looking at, you know, either probiotics or prebiotics. And I think having a good understanding of the differences between a, a chicken and a turkey relative to the microbiome is very important. Mm-hmm. They certainly have a much longer time period to develop that microbiome. Yes. Yep. So I'd be interested, could we walk through maybe phase by phase and talk about some of the pitfalls that you see with starting birds in research conditions and then moving on as the birds get larger with some of those behavioral considerations? I seem to recall that there's a certain time point where they can fly a little bit that a lot of people uh, don't necessarily know about and try to run a, a turkey study in broiler pens and get a terrible surprise when they come in and none of the birds are in the pens anymore. <laughs> So I've definitely seen that happen with, with other research facilities. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, around, well, even four to six to eight weeks of age, I mean, they're light enough yet that they can fly and they literally, you know, if they can, they'll climb up fences and that too, you know, as they're trying to flap their way over the, the fence. But, yeah, so I think, again, uh, well, a couple of things people need to recognize in turkeys anyways, we do, we have a brooding phase, which in the industry would typically be a separate barn. And then those birds would be moved to a grow out uh, facility after that. And so having the appropriately sized feeder and water type equipment, you know, for those two stages, um, even in a research um, pen setting. And then uh, brooding, I, I always say, you know, if you don't have things perfect on at time zero when the birds get to the to the barn, you're already behind. So you know, having um, you know having the barn, and then there's a little bit of a challenge in in the Midwest as well. You know, when we're dealing with winter, so having the barns warmed up, having uh, the litter warmed up, the bedding warmed up, uh, having the right temperatures set up uh, in our facility, we had to have heat lamps in each each pen. And so you can see that, you know, if you have 100 pens already, you have kind of a nightmare for <laughs> a nightmare for temperature yes. <laughs> control in that. And then just uh, logistically with uh, being able to heat the building, have good, you know, relatively good air mix, mixing and uniform temperature. You really need to spend a lot of time on that before the birds are even actually placed. These birds, the turkey poults are very sensitive to small differences and just, you know, a little bit of a draft or a little bit of a temperature change that's outside of their comfort zone. Uh, they just they just don't go to the feeders and waters. And so now all of a sudden, if you're looking at a study on doing gut development or influence of, say, a probiotic product, you know, early on, administered early on, you're already a little bit behind because the birds haven't started to eat and drink. And so it's not only in terms of, um, I know a lot of times people think of like mortality, starve out mortality as being the issue, but um, in over years, I think that has improved in the industry as well. But um, but we're also looking at that very initial start on that bird and what influence that will have later on. So, so a lot of what we do in the first day or two is really temperature management, looking at the behavior of the birds. We do vent temperatures as well. Uh, we use all of that information to try to make the adjustments to get the birds off to a good start. But then after we've <laughs> spent so much time getting those temperatures adjusted for that initial brooding, then sometimes what people forget is, or not forget, or don't place enough emphasis on is, is decreasing those temperatures over time. 
And these are really rapidly growing birds. And so you have to stay on top of temperature adjustments in the barn as well. Otherwise, they'll, they'll get, I don't want to say overheated, but you may limit some feed intake because the temperature is just a little bit, little bit too warm for them, especially when we get into the older birds. And then I think, again, if you're used to broiler chickens, I think broiler chicks are a little more curious, you know, when they're placed, whereas turkey poults, maybe not as much. You know, they tend to not be as active and not uh, as good at searching things out. Um, and so, again, by having these conditions, watch, watching them, getting them attracted, you know, to the feeders and waters is really important. So, so I think a message would be if, if there's any place you have to plan at the start that you're going to be spending a lot of time in that barn before and shortly after, you know, the poults are placed. Mm -hmm. Then after that, um, <clears throat> you know, it's primarily management of the litter and feeders and, and drinkers and that. Um, and we do have to switch over at some point in time. If they're staying in the same pen, we do have to switch over to some different feeders and waters as they get older, usually summers around four to six weeks of age. It's a little bit hard in a research facility, at least our old style research facility to have like, um, you know, nipple drinkers or something like that, uh, which I think would really help uh, in terms of um, litter management because we do eventually run into problems where we start to get some some wet litter, which um, also can cause foot pad dermatitis and leg problems as well. Um, and then once they get older and they've transferred to those more adult, I don't want to say adult, but growing feeders and drinkers in that, then one of the biggest things and probably one of the most challenging things, especially on these big heavy toms, is feed wastage. So then getting decent measurements of feed intake in order to be able to calculate your feed conversion. And if you've ever looked at a turkey's beak, you know, <laughs> 12 to 18 to 20 weeks old, it's huge. And so then that kind of comes back to, okay, are you able to feed a pelleted feed, which a lot of times in research situations you're not, and then you're left with mash. And uh, these birds... Uh, really can waste a lot of feed and that's when you really need to jump on as well as you know height and adjustment on the feeders to try to minimize that uh, that feed loss too mm -hmm. and so that's where it gets to be difficult because I've had people come in and say well we have a product that we think can improve feed conversion by three points um, all the way through to market you know which on heavy times would be 18 to 20 weeks and I just kind of look at them and go I there's no way that's possible. <laughs> yeah. uh, it might be in some research facilities, but definitely, you know, not in my experience. You might be able to, you know, with really good control in that, you might be able to do that on a younger bird, but not on, but not on an older bird. So just because of the amount of feed wastage. And even on the, you know, even once they, you know, we've gotten them past brood, they're, they're growing well and everything. They're also very sensitive to, minor changes in temperature. And these can be even within what we call their comfort zone, but it's enough to take and affect their feed intake. And then ultimately, you know, that takes and affects their growth rate too. So now we're back to, you know, trying to manage temperature and ventilation to, to keep everybody the same, you know, in a smaller pen setting. Mm -hmm. How about lighting? 
Oh, yes, we can't forget about lighting. <laughs> and that gets a little complicated, too, because many years ago, I mean, the, some of the research that was out there actually showed intermittent lighting was a very positive um, for turkeys. But again, with some influences of, of um, some concerns that animal well-being, that intermittent light program is not a, a natural lighting program. But I think it meets the need of the bird being able to eat and rest and eat and rest and so forth, which is pretty much their natural behavior anyways. But, you know, we've had to go to a, a day length type, you know, having a, a continuous day length and a continuous uh, nighttime period as well. So, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, lighting can have a lot of different impacts on behavior, performance and, and nutrition, uh, particularly in toms, you know, because they are as they get past 12 weeks of age, uh, they, they increase their testosterone production. And then, you know, based on the lighting program, then we can run into some issues, you know, with aggression and, and uh, damage. You know. Yes. I remember those guys being uh, a little, little bit of a bully sometimes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, very interesting. It's uh, very different from broilers. You just have to live with your decisions for a much longer time. Oh, yes, <laughs> that's for sure. Because if you don't, like I said, I mean, you, you might influence the outcome of your research on the way that the birds start. You might also have to live with uh, mistakes as well, because a lot of times these mistakes don't show up until after, again, in the heavy times, you know, until sometime after 12 weeks of age. And and if that's the case, then you're left with having to call birds, remove birds from pens and that. And, um, and if you have a small number of birds in a pen to begin with, you know, then you start to get kind of a little bit uncertain about, um, you know, what is, or you're not getting a very good actual representative average body weight for that particular pen because if you pull mm -hmm. up. Yes, it definitely affects the density quite a bit. Yes, you pull out 30% of your birds, it might be three out of 10, but that's, that's a huge amount. And you can't really replace those birds either if you, you know, if you were set up to try to do that, um, just because after that 12-week time period, at least on the toms anyways, they're just so aggressive that it's difficult for those new birds to survive anyways. So. Yes, difficult to disrupt that pecking order. JBI helps poultry producers fight against harmful pathogens with the foaming power of D7 disinfectant. JBI prevents costly outbreaks and ensures eco-friendly biosecurity on farm and in transport. D7 disinfectant is safe and effective against AI, E. coli, Salmonella, Cocci, Dermatitis, and other illness-causing pathogens. It is non-toxic, providing a safer environment for your employees. D7 is also minimally corrosive to equipment and breaks down biofilms. Learn more at jbidistributors.com. So with all of those challenges and how important each phase is, do you typically still see turkey research run as a full life cycle or have people done more phase specific research or does it just vary depending on what's being looked at? <laughs> Probably just varies depending on. I think you could say all of the above. All of the above. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, if you look at the base of the literature that's out there, a lot of times most of it is something up to six or eight weeks of age because, you know, facilities can handle that. The feed demand isn't as great. Um, you can have larger numbers of birds. And so there's a lot of reasons from uh, conducting the research standpoint that you might limit to the 
to the younger ages, but then we look at, well, what happens after that time period when most of the growth is occurring, most of the feed intake is occurring. Basically, the message I got in Minnesota anyways, and working with the industry and that is they really do want to see things go all the way to, to market uh, from start to finish. It's where you get finish. the most bang for your buck, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Even if the studies are more challenging. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for sure. So I think we've definitely seen kind of a shift, at least in recently, in feed additives away from more of the alternative ingredient type, uh, you know, feeds uh, to something that's a catch-all gut health type products. Um, and you had mentioned working in this area with distinguishing between prebiotics and probiotics and their effect on the microbiome. What are your thoughts just generally in this area? And do you think that you can manipulate the microbiome of turkeys through the feed, either for performance outcomes or for food safety outcomes? Yeah, I, you know, all of those are, po again, are possibilities. I think, and there's been enough research out there to show, I think that there are, are products that work and that we could take and shift the microbiome. I think what we run into, though, is, is the issue of, again, over a 20-week time period and all the different stressors and feed outages and other things, you know, that can, ha can happen during that time period. And so I think, I think there's definitely a need to get more research done on what happens, I mean, in a, a practical production system to take and assess um, when do these disruptions occur, how quickly, you know, can, can the birds recover in that. And then I, I think there may be some things in here, you know, on a farm too, like our research farm, I mean, we very rarely have any disease challenges, which kind of frustrates the industry a little bit. <laughs> for a while, I was criticized for getting too good of performance from my birds, and what I was doing wasn't applicable because the performance was too good, which I thought was a little bit strange. But um, <laughs> That is a common complaint. But then again, if you turn around and have a disease challenge, how relevant is the outcome? Anyways, with that extra variation, it's definitely a catch-22. Yes, it is. But I think, you know, so like we have probably an established microbiome on a farm, you know, because we get very little stresses and interruptions and that. So then we come back to with different products that might be put into the feed and it may not be the best, you know, best or most suitable product for our situation, you know, because we, we have this established microbiome and it seems to be a relatively healthy microbiome anyways. And so I think it's, again, a little bit different setting from the, the standpoint of going out in the industry. I mean, they, they probably have established microbiomes on their farms as well, and then trying to get those to take and shift or overcome, you know, the disruptions that typically occur on a farm. Uh, I think that's where we, we need to think more about some kind of model or something that would help with describing that. That's definitely a challenging area, particularly because feed mills often are, you know, distributing feed in a geographical region as opposed to, you know, farm by farm microbiome is a pretty hard target to hit. You probably have farms that have uh, what you would call a good microbiome and farms that have more challenges. It's very hard to hit that in the feed in a large swath and have it have an effect. So I absolutely agree. That's a, a difficult area. Yeah. I was just going to mention when I had started my position. 
1985, and I, uh, I think it was probably within a year or two years after starting and doing some farm visits and that, I'd gone out to one farm and and um, we were talking about feeding programs and that. And the person looked at me and said, you can have the best feeding program in the world, he said, but if the birds don't, you know, if there's poor health and poor management, he says it, it doesn't make any sense to feed it. <laughs> Very difficult to outfeed some of the external influences on the Yes. <laughs> no, I absolutely agree. Um, you had also mentioned kind of moving towards an all-vegetable-fed diet and some challenges with turkeys. I know for sure on the broiler side, over the last decade or so, we've seen the all-veg, ABF, no-antibiotics-ever type products go from a niche-marketed product to over half of the, the majority of the broilers produced are fed uh, one of those programs. I won't say the majority of the meat sold is one of those programs, but the majority of the feed is. Um, have you seen a similar trend in turkeys and how has the industry adapted to that? Yeah, I don't know if it'd be anywhere near half being fed anyways. Um, definitely, you know, for a very targeted target, targeted uh, market. But again, you know, the consumer is, is uh, driving the bus, if you want to call it that. And, and so as demand for those products grow, you know, that's, that's what's going to ha uh, have to happen. And so I think from a field perspective anyways, is, is recognizing that, you know, when switches are made in this type of feeding system, you know, it takes some research and preparing the growers and that for, you know, potential changes, uh, particularly with the high soybean meal diets, you know, you're probably going to have more issues with litter moisture, uh, maybe more issues with gut health, um, and, and particularly if they're ABF as well, uh, blocks too. I think in turkeys, again, the challenge is, is that they're around for such a long time. Uh, but the work that we did anyways, um, basically, at least in comparison to, it, you might have called it an industry industry control several years ago where it had animal protein in there, it had bacitrecin in there as an antibiotic. And, and, uh, but, uh, but I remember in that starting diet, I think we had to go up to like 58% soybean meal in that diet to try to accomplish um, uh, meeting the protein and amino acid deeds in that. And then we had also reduced the soybean meal level and tried to come back with some amino acids as much as possible to try to get some amino acid balance. But that that part's actually going to require a much deeper look, a much deeper examination to try to get the amino acid balance is correct and what's available as supplemental and what might not be available. But anyways, what, what we saw, and this kind of gets back to, I think, differences between turkeys and chickens a little bit too, is that around nine weeks of age, anyways, the, the birds that were on those high soybean meal level diets actually, um, I think by that time, their gut was fairly well adapted to the soybean meal and the Sika, uh That's one, I think, thing I think that is really different between turkeys and chickens is the sequel capacity in turkeys is just huge. And so after nine weeks of age, I think they got to the point where, you know, they're able to ferment, you know, some of those um, more complex carbohydrates in the soybean meal. Uh, things had stabilized by then. Uh, obviously, the soybean meal levels would have dropped by then as well. And so they actually started to go through a compensatory growth period. And so at the end of end of the trial, um, 
they uh, had actually pretty much recovered growth compared to the, you know, the industry control. The only thing that was lagging a little bit again was some of the breast meat yield uh, information that, that we had collect. I mean, breast meat yield that we had collected. Um, so again, with the length of time those birds have and under good conditions, we, we did see that compensatory growth occurred and maybe not having as damaging of an effect, you know, on the overall flock performance. Um, our crew also, um, maybe fortunately or unfortunately, did a good job managing the litter in that barn, which again is, you know, a little, you know, a little bit more of an issue, you know, in a commercial setting. So I think we showed that we could, we could do that, but there were a lot of ifs later on, like if, you know, the compensatory growth would, would um, occur if they didn't have any other digestive or gut health challenges. Did you measure any ammonia uh, concentrations in, in that study, or, or can you speculate on, is there an impact on ammonia emissions when you're feeding um, perhaps a higher total crude protein versus uh, the, the diets with the animal proteins? Yeah, yeah. So in the litter analyses we did, we did see, and I can't remember the values right offhand, but we did see higher uh, crude, nit- or crude protein nitrogen values. Uh, we didn't really, I mean, we monitor for ammonia, you know, basically when we run any trial, but because all the treatments, you know, were within the same space, I um, couldn't relate it back to anything, but basically we just keep an eye on the ammonia and then adjust ventilation depending upon what's going on that way. So sounds like it's doable. Just take some extra management. <laughs> yeah, that's And I think that's what people are finding out, you know, as they move into these programs that you know, more management until, well, more management and learning what, learning what to expect and what to do. Well, it's very helpful research information for the industry, for sure. Um, switching gears from nutrition over to kind of turkey health and, and your extension role, um, you know, obviously avian influenza has been a huge challenge for the poultry industry as a whole, uh, but it has been historically particularly devastating to the Minnesota turkey industry. Can you talk a little bit about your experience working through um, both outbreaks in the past and this year? And have you seen improvements and changes in how that's been managed? And do you have any biosecurity pet peeves that you'd like to talk <laughs> to our audience about? <laughs> oh, um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, so for the 2015 outbreak, I was probably uh, much more involved for that one. And maybe not as involved for the, you know, the spring outbreak here in 2022. And part of that was because uh, extension and those of us that were working in 2015 recognized that we needed to have somebody hired that could do additional training, communications, uh, biosecurity assessments. coordinating liaison a little bit between, you know, the industry, the university, and obviously, I mean, like our Board of Animal Health does a lot of that, but then we also have a lot of independent producers as well that sometimes, um, but 2015, I think, got missed a little bit in terms of communications and directions and so forth. And so we shortly, I think it was actually during the outbreak anyways, we were able to hire another uh, extension specialist, uh, Abby Schuft, 
And uh, she, and then uh, Dr. Cardona and I worked with her quite closely to get her started on things. And um, she had done some, I think, some farm emergency work before. And so, I mean, she had a scattering of some of the skills anyways that we thought were necessary. And since that time, she has just built a wonderful program and works uh, and we and people even from not a, even at the farm level have called her and asked her for okay we would like so like a betting company uh, we would like to set up a biosecurity program for our, our betting company you know and you think about yeah there's a lot of transport and things moving around all the time uh, sometimes some of the well processing plants and some of the smaller processing plants and some of the smaller feed suppliers and that. And so she's done an excellent job getting, I think, getting good information out there and getting recognized. So, but I think in 2015, even though we knew it was coming, we weren't, you know, we weren't at all prepared for the scope of what happened. I just, I remember when the first flock, um, I often, when I hear avian influenza, I I think I get a stress reaction. I apologize for bringing it up. Oh, no, that's okay. Um, you know, we were all like, I think the first flock was died or, uh, detected in either late February, early March of that. And the flock was put down. And then it seemed like there was two week time period where nothing happened. And then all, all heck broke loose after that lasted until I think that following June. So during that time point, I mean, we were trying to get things out about the Danish entry, um, get information out about that. And setting up some training, some fact sheets, and then along with Wayne Martin, who's a, a, a regional specialist as well in small flocks, small farms, and that. We we're also trying to work with the backyard flock people at that time. And the problem there was that there was, again, this bias, you know, within the small flock that, okay, well, we have chickens, and chickens are a little more resistant to avian flu than, than turkeys are. We're not big, you know, and so we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> so the challenge there was getting information out to them and trying to get them to kind of get serious about it, which I think actually helped us this time around. Yes, particularly considering I think there's been a huge expansion in the number of backyard producers over that time period. Yeah. And yet they seem to handle it better this time around. Yeah, and they were more receptive. And and then again, we had some of the naysayers, you know, that it's, oh, it's a commercial industry problem. But there were actually some of the small flock people that are coming back and saying, okay, we need to pay attention to this. We need to improve our biosecurity. And we actually did, I think, have, and again, I can't remember the numbers, but more uh, backyard flocks involved in this outbreak than we did in 2015. Uh, so, so I think they're paying attention anyways. And then the other thing that I think of going through that whole process in 2015 and why we kind of ended up focusing on the, the Danish entry system, you know, with some separation of, of the dirty and clean sides and that. Yeah. Could you go into a little bit more detail about that? I think it's probably more familiar on the swine side. Yes. Um, I've seen it used in research facilities, in poultry I would love to see it catch on in industry, both broilers and beyond, because it, it seems like a great model. Uh, for those of our audience who are unfamiliar, if you could give some details on that, that would be cool. Oh, sure. Sure. So um, to kind of go along with that, to set the stage, is that 
we also talk about operational versus structural biosecurity. So operational, I kind of think about is what we do on a day-to-day basis. And Simon Chain, I think, was the one that had developed these different conceptual levels of, or not, or different levels of um, biosecurity. And so that would be like, you know, uh, washing your boots, um, you know, those types of things before entering the barn. And you do that on a daily or whatever needs to be done on a daily basis. But in order to facilitate that, there's been a whole lot more discussion about structural biosecurity. So what is a structure that is needed to help people perform the biosecurity actions that they need to do? And so I remember going to one meeting and there was a lot of talk about, you know, shower in, shower out facilities, which are obviously very necessary for, you know, breeder farms and that. But there was one fellow that was talking about, yeah, you know, it turns out our shower wasn't operating very good and was basically shooting out cold water at, I don't know, some extreme PSI. (laughs) And so what they basically found out is everybody would try to walk through the shower and avoid the water. So, so, you know, so you have to have facilities that are going to be comfortable and facilitate this. But anyways, getting back to the Danish entry uh, part of it, then it's, it basically is some kind of physical separation or visual separation of what we call the dirty side. And I know this can get confusing to people, but the dirty side is actually the side when you're entering the barn or entering hopefully a, a workroom area before entering the barn. We call that the dirty side because you're coming in from the outside and going inside. And the clean side, although I know it kind of messes up your thinking, is actually once you're inside the barn. And all that's saying is that is when we're coming from the outside, it's dirty. We don't know for sure how dirty it is or what's there or anything, but we want to try to make sure that we're not transferring organisms when we go over to the clean side, clean side being the current status of the flock and and not being contaminated with outside organisms. And so typically in swine barns, the way that's been handled is, is they call it a bench. And it's basically an area that basically you have to uh, come in, take off um, your outside clothing. People have all different versions of this, which gets a, makes it a little confusing. But anyways, with the Danish entry, there's some kind of physical separation of that, of that dirty and clean side. It could be a bench. It could be a shower area, you know, something like that. Uh, for some of our producers, what they did is they just they put down duct tape on the floor, you know, bright yellow or bright orange or something like that. And, you know, the uh, we had the dirty side and, and the clean side. Uh, typically then on the dirty side, like I said, you're shedding your out, uh, outside clothing and that you're leaving your uh, shoes behind. Uh, when you make that transfer over the bench, you try to keep from. Um, you know, your shoes will be off. You'll be transferring over the bench, you, um, putting on boots, and then probably putting on either some kind of coveralls or lab coats or something like that before you take and enter. People will add in hand washes. A lot of times they actually may provide farm-specific clothing. So once the person arrives at the farm, that they actually are assigned clothing there, and then they add, um, add on other things um, depending upon the farm requirements and that. So it can be a very simple entryway or it can be very complex, you know, depending upon what's going on. The other thing that comes along with that then is, okay, how do you transfer things like 
maybe you need to hang nails someplace in the barn or, or use nails in the barn. So, so you might have gotten, or you might have gotten something shipped from Amazon that needs to get into uh, the barn. Okay. So how do you do that? And how do you do that going through process? So we did a, we actually did a little exercise with um, my farm workers. And um, so I gave them a box on the outside and I said, take this into the barn and get it transferred without touching anything. And he walked into the barn and then just literally stood there with the box in hand because we weren't set up to handle that box. So we needed a cart or something or a table to put that box on. And then you could also talk about, okay, does that box need to go someplace where it sits in quarantine before you're going to take and transfer it? So we spent a lot of time. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time, you know, just kind of going through a lot of the little things that you probably wouldn't think of, but so, yeah, so it was pretty interesting. And we did, we also started a whole bunch of different glow germ studies, which are still continuing on. So glow germ is a substance. You can either get it as a powder or as a cream and you can, um, you know, put it on your hands. We've had, we, train students to going through exercises of, you know, they get, we hit contaminate them with glow germ first. And, um, and then we have them go through the exercise of putting on coverall booties and so forth. And then they cross the line into the clean side and then uh, come back and do the process in reverse. And then we get the little black light out and we can see how much transfer there was. And actually, um, that we find that going through that process and the training anyways, we get, they're pretty good about not transferring a lot of stuff. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Adiseo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adiseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adiseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adiseo at www.adiseo.com. Yes, I really love the idea of having that physical barrier or physical reminder there. Um, I've often found in situations where a pathogen enters a house and there is a clear epidemiological trace of, of the reason, it's not the usually, usually not the basic biosecurity things that we kind of cover every day. As a matter of principle, it is the exceptions to the rule. A fan broke in the house and someone needs to come repair it and it's an outside person. Um, someone had a family emergency and had a relative come over as a temporary worker, but failed to mention anything about biosecurity to them. And maybe they have birds on their farm. These things happen all the time. But unless you think about them when making your SOPs or training, there you're going to be like that person standing there with that box. <laughs> yeah. What do I do? <laughs> so, yeah. And unfortunately, in those situations, the urgency kind of wins, right? The person just carries the box into the house. Yeah. And we had that too, or somebody just, you know, you forget sometimes you know, what the process it is. And that's why the structural aspect really comes in to try to remind people this is what you need to be doing step by step. Um, but yeah, so it's like, oh yeah, I'm coming back from someplace and I just need to poke my head in the barn, you know, to see if the birds are doing okay. And I don't want to go through all of this. And yeah, so then from a structural standpoint, 
you could think about, well, what can I build or have that would allow the person to be able to look at the birds um, or something like that, or look at, you know, look at the control panel or something without having to go through the, you know, the whole process of entering the barn. So, um, yeah, so I think that's where we kind of, I mean, we really ended up doing a, a lot more uh, thinking and so forth about the structural aspects to try to get people to do it. You asked about my pet peeve, and I don't know if it's a pet peeve or not, but, but if you're using signs, people don't read signs. No. <laughs> so, again, one thing that Abby and another person, uh, Hannah, that they've been working on doing a lot of things with uh, infographics type things, where it's essentially pictures. And people are more likely to look at pictures than they are to try to read, you know, text on a sign. So for one of our extension meetings one time, we we actually, um, we were going to talk about biosecurity and people were coming in and we had a sign posted at the entry that said, please use, this was pre-COVID, uh, please use hand sanitizer um, when you enter the room. So the sign was there. It was a fairly big sign and the the enormous gallon jug of <laughs> hand sanitizer was, I can't believe it. The only people we found out the only people that use the hand use the hand sanitizer and looked at the uh, sign coming in were people that were involved in the medical field. Some we we tried to get this was an extension general extension meeting, and we tried to get a sense of who was attending, and it was the nurses that were using the hand sanitizer. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, I'm pretty disappointed in signs. People just really. Don't pay attention. I think because after a while you get so many signs that. Especially if there's signs you see every day too. I think they just become part of the background at some point. So it's very good, very interesting research and valuable. Really goes to show comparing the initial response in 2015 to how things have been handled now, the value of having these extension positions, um, especially reaching out to smaller producers and backyard folks who don't have as many resources, but are still a critical component of any disease response. So thank you so much for doing that work. If any of our audience has influence over uh, academia or, you know, has the ear of anybody, extension positions, extension position. Yes, <laughs> please. Cannot be said <laughs> enough. The, the value is absolutely there. Um, I know it's not the first thing people necessarily think of in, in a department, um, but they're the ones that have some of the deepest impacts on the industry and just the general public, honestly. So another thing we had started to do, so um, we started looking at game, game cameras to try to assess um, uh, biosecurity risk or disease transmission risk. And I had actually started one project um, wasn't for avian influenza, it was for another disease. And, and um, the place had a compost, you know, a dead bird composting unit on it. And we, they were suspecting, you know, that animals were transferring disease, you know, from the wild animals were transferring disease from the compost unit um, to the barns and that. So we set up some game cameras just to see what wildlife were, were present in that. And we actually did find that a lot of wildlife were having a party out at the compost bin, you know, <laughs> at midnight. But, Free but nutrients. The other, yeah. But the other thing we learned, and unintentionally anyways, 
was documenting the amount of traffic that can happen on a farm. And this would be equipment traffic, vehicle traffic, people traffic. And we were finding places where a lot of this traffic was was centralized with people and vehicles coming back and forth in that. And so that was kind of an eye-opener for, okay, how do we better schedule or figure out, you know, traffic plans, people in vehicles on the farm if that's occurring, and um, try to try to decrease uh, biosecurity risks. So this farm actually started to separate out some of the operations, you know, that seemed to be at the central point. So, so that was pretty, pretty gratifying. Yeah, that's very eye-opening. Great idea using the game cameras too. I would say if I have one biosecurity pet peeve, it's cell phones. Yes. The number of times I've seen someone unzip their coveralls and pull out a cell phone that was just in another chicken house and another chicken house and another chicken house. Leave your cell phone outside. <laughs> yeah, we, we do have some of those training videos on the U- University of Minnesota Extension website, the poultry specific. And we do talk a little bit about cell phones where basically we just tell people that whatever you have on you has to be kept on the dirty side, not brought into the... But I know cell phones are so hard because, yeah, for a number of reasons. Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, and there's obviously reasons you would want to have a way to communicate on you as you go into a farm. Um, it's just uh, always strikes me as funny when someone puts on all of the layers of PPE and then immediately will just go right in there and get the result. <laughs> so still some work to do in that area. It's time for our famous three. You can see we're getting towards the end of our time. I do have a few questions that we ask at the end of every episode. The first one is, what is your favorite book or resource related to uh, turkey nutrition or just poultry nutrition in general? Is there something that you can recommend to our audience? So, yeah, unfortunately, uh, there hasn't been a lot written on (laughs) poultry nutrition (laughs) for quite some time and and less so for um, turkeys. But uh, some of my favorite books, obviously, and, and they lean more towards the physiology side. But um, so like, you know, Sturkey's uh, physiology series of books and that. And, you know, depending upon the edition, you know, some of the information is more practical and some of it is very basic in that. And then um, another book that I used, I, I think if I have the label right, it's a book by Kurt Clazing out of uh, UC Davis. And I think it's avian nutrition, um, and it's a lot of a lot of physiology in it as well. But it also gets into well interrelationships of physiology and nutrition, and it's broad. It is broad. I mean, it's not specific to poultry. You know, it also covers uh, other avian species in that. But for anybody that wants to do more advanced training in that area, and then after that, <laughs> I don't, you know. They still have a lot of the old editions of poultry nutrition and Leeson's, you know, commercial um, poultry nutrition books as well. Um, and then, you know, and actually some of the, oh, you know, the breeder, the genetic companies and that with their management guides and everything. Or um, A lot of times if you just need need to kind of get a little bit of background information in that they they have some very good information on nutrition and feeding and in their management guides as well. So those are excellent recommendations. Uh, as far as something outside of poultry nutrition, this could be a podcast, a book, a website. Um, is there anything that has caught your eye lately that you've been interested in that you can recommend to our audience? 
Mm, gosh, I <laughs> go to so many websites. Yeah, websites and journals and that. I I also do appreciate some of the the podcasts and webinars and that that a lot of companies put on regarding their their uh, products, and they also try to make it you know an unbiased uh, presentation as well. And I've actually have used some of them in classes just because they've done a very good job. I, I think one was on choline, and I can't remember what another one was, but they did a very good job on a lot of the mechanisms and the biochemistry and everything behind that. Much better than I could have ever done. So. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good so. resources. Um, as far as journals, I think people get a little bit of tunnel vision with just poultry science and Journal of Applied Poultry Nutrition, or Journal of Applied Poultry Research, sorry. Um are there any journals that you think people are overlooking or, or should also be looking for when they're going through their lit reviews, when they're looking for information? Oh, um, definitely. I, I think, you know, journal on nutrition, uh, even though, you know, I think we miss some things, like you say, because we're too focused on poultry, because there are so many different discoveries that can come out, you know, on the human side or other animal species side that might, that might have some application to poultry. So I think, you know, for anybody doing a literature review, you have to be open to looking at some of those papers as well. So, And then uh, lastly, before we wrap up today, I'd like you to think in your head about someone that you would consider successful or just generally a successful person. In your mind, what are some traits or characteristics that set people up for success or separate those who are, are more or less successful, however you define that? So I might I might go back to when I first started my position, and I I think this is key for a lot of people, you know, that are new and entering into positions as well. Having somebody that is willing to take and mentor them, mm -hmm. and I mean being being engaged and actually mentoring and helping them get started. It's not just like a one day orientation and here now you do the job. <laughs> uh, but it it's um, more continual mentoring over you know, at least a fair amount of that, potentially that person's career. And so when I started, you know, Dave Halverson uh, was extension veterinarian over in college veterinary medicine and that. And I mean, it, it couldn't have worked for a better mentor than him. Uh, he got me started in the industry, connected meetings, you know, topics and, and then, you know, allowing me to expand after that. And so I think, I think, you know, from that standpoint, mentoring skills, um, communications, obviously, and we're all really busy, you know, all the time. And so sometimes it gets hard to set aside time to communicate and, and do it effectively. Absolutely. And so, and then, you know, some kind of, pe you know, people, person skills, you know, mm -hmm. um, the best chatting type person, <laughs> but I try. But I, think it's, <laughs> uh, um, I tend to want to get down to business right away. And sometimes that might not be the, you know, might not be the best approach, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, definitely making time for those communications. And, and then, you know, from the standpoint of working with the industry and that it's, and it's been hard the last several years anyways, between avian influenza and COVID and that is, you know, just that, you know, FaceTime, if you want to call it that, with producers and people out in the industry and be, being able to get into barns and see what's going on. And and that's why I'm a little bit worried right now. You know, it's for students anyways, you know, trying to get them on tours or out to farms and that. It, it's just gotten so, 
so difficult and that they really need to do that. I mean, you can do a video and talk and everything like that, but there's nothing like walking into the barn and and hearing and seeing and smelling <laughs> everything that's going on. So um, I might have drifted from your question there a little no, bit. No, <laughs> that was a fantastic answer and very relevant. I think, you know, we certainly see that more and more folks for sure in the U.S. are not raised with an agricultural background. Um, and, and I am one of those students. And I think if it weren't for your, you know, directed mentorship and belief that despite the fact I had never seen a turkey before working in your lab as an undergraduate research assistant, you believe that I could learn and you dedicated the time to help me learn. And I really believe that, you know, there won't be a future for poultry science unless people dedicate the time to help people learn from whatever background they're from. And there's simply not enough people of an ag background left to sustain the industry's employment needs. So, you know, I'm deeply appreciative of you taking the time to do that for me, for all of your students. And I hope that, you know, the university continues to be an area where that mentorship can proceed as we go forward. Well, thank you very much. And yeah, over the, and I've had so much fun watching my students as, once they've graduated and moved on to other things and what they're doing and how they're doing. And yeah, it's been very nice. So. <laughs> it's hard work, but I can see it being rewarding. <laughs> you wouldn't have done it for 30 years if it wasn't, right? Oh, no, no. I really love my job or at least most parts of my job anyway. So. <laughs> well, we certainly appreciate all of the hard work you've done in your position in extension, in research with turkey nutrition, which is a field that can always use more research. I thank you very much for your time today and for coming on the Poultry Podcast Show. Thank you, Dr. Noll. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you very much for the invitation. It was our honor. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>